Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. I have an episode for you today, which I'm calling The Re-Rise of Fundamentalism. And if I do this right, I'm going to step on your toes. I'm going to step on my own toes. If I do this right, I hope to step on everybody's toes. Something I say in here, I hope will bother you. Because we're in a kind of environment right now, cultural, social, political, religious environment, where fundamentalism is on the rise, and we're, we're susceptible to it. We're hooked by it. We're hooked by it because en masse, we're susceptible to this kind of energy. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about where I, uh, where I see fundamentalism on the rise and, and a little bit of how to spot it. And just a little bit, hints and guesses for, for what to do about it, how to, how to avoid, if we can, getting hooked by this kind, of, this kind of energy, this kind of atmosphere that comes in, like the way a storm comes in off the ocean and just, you know, <laughs> envelops us. And I got this idea for the podcast from my wife. I get a lot of good ideas from her. And one of the things we've been talking about lately is how much the cultural climate right now reminds us of our childhood. And both of us grew up in really right-wing, Christian, religious, fundamentalist circles. They were a little different. She's from Georgia. I'm from Virginia. And at least in my, in my case, I was around the, the sort of bigwigs of, of Christian fundamentalism and, and the moral majority, which my dad helped found which I've said before on this podcast and, and also wrote a little bit about it in my, in my book, Bitten by a Camel. But um, it, my point is, I know what fundamentalism looks like. And it's in, in some senses, it's easy to spot right now. And probably one of the biggest surprises of my life is that I see a lot of fundamentalism on the left. If I, if I had to... Um, you know, sort of put my my assumptions on the table, my card-carrying assumptions from a few years ago, it would look something like this, that the right is the side that's susceptible to fundamentalism and that part of the definition of being on the left or liberal, you could say, or progressive, is that for sure we're not fundamentalists. And the funny thing about that is now that I know just a little bit about, you know, shadow work 101, you know, if you if you protest too much, what Shakespeare say? I think the protesteth too much. If you say, well, one thing I know, I'm definitely not as a fundamentalist. You can be pretty sure it's there. It's just hidden in the shadows. And and the left, with a vengeance, in the last few years, probably you know, particularly in the in the Trump and post-Trump era, has just um, increasingly looked a lot more like fundamentalism than I ever would have guessed. And so I want to talk about that. And so I'm going to pick on the left a little bit. I hope to pick on the right. They're easy. I always, I've made a, you know, <laughs> I spent a lot of my time and wasted a lot of energy in, in some sense picking on the right. And, and where do I stand if you want to know? Well, in neither place. For some reason, the last few years have just completely, you know, pulled the rug out from under my own feet when it comes to where do I stand with with my, am I red or blue, you know? And, and I just want to say neither. And I'm, I'm not trying to be, you know, to weasel out of something. I think actually there's something about the 21st century. And I think if we're going to make it to the 22nd century, that we need to discover a bit of the red and blue in, in our own hearts, in our own psyches. If we're going to come back to a place where we can have real, concrete, gracious, generative conversations about the difficulties of what it means to be a human being in the 21st century. Instead of the dividing the world up so rigidly, which again is an expression of fundamentalism. So that's where I'm going with this. And, and um, yeah, maybe that, that was my, that was me introducing the title of the podcast. So let me start by saying, hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this. I really, really want to thank my patrons who make this podcast happen every month. Thank you. Every amount, you know, helps from a dollar on up to help support this podcast and help me pay for, you know, uh, the costs associated with putting it on, putting it on the World Wide Web and all that stuff. So I really feel supported 
And um, yeah, so I, I can't I can't thank you enough. And the rest of you who are not patrons, well, you can become one. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing it. If you leave a review on iTunes, it it actually does make a difference in the almighty algorithms that run our lives. So um, I'll encourage you to do that. And maybe more importantly, pass this podcast on to someone that you think it might you know benefit in some way. So, um, and I, and I hope you've enjoyed the the conversations that I've been hosting. I've been experimenting a little bit, not so much with interviews, uh, but with hosting conversations. And the last one with Bree Stoner, I thought was pretty pretty cool and pretty interesting. So. Um, there'll be more of those down the road as, as, um, I don't know, as I feel inspired, I do often wait for the muse to tell you the truth. The muse, meaning the, the upwelling of creative energy from the underworld that has an autonomous life of its own. That's the way it feels. You know, in, in Greek mythology, you have the underground river of memory, which is truth. The only word for truth is the underground river of memory. And up from the underground river of memory come the nine muses. So I just, for some reason, I'm so gripped by that mythic image that even our own creativity is connected to something deep, to the deep river of memory. So sometimes I just wait for the muse. And and so I feel a little inspired with this podcast and, and I've been really working hard on a new book uh, I have a rough draft, actually. What what does Anne Lamott call them? A shitty first draft. So I'm somewhere there. And um, yeah, so, okay, enough of that. What is fundamentalism? Well, I think it's a bit hard to, to define, um, but I'll tell you some important elements of of its rise in the modern era. So fundamentalism, technically Protestant Christian fundamentalism, which is maybe how it came into modern parlance is the place to start. And that's my heritage. Protestant Christian fundamentalism was really a response in the, in the 19th century to evolution and science and, and modernity more broadly because and historical critical scholarship with the Bible, I might add. So 200 years ago with the German, uh, critics, um, really literary critics initially, but then those disciplines spilled into archaeology and sociology and anthropology, all the things that I love. And, and so in response, in reaction, in reactivity, the, the Protestant church, or maybe you could even call it the Protestant mind, was a little alarmed by this new scientific lens of truth through which the Bible was being run the rubric through which the Bible was being read. And instead of saying something like, well, that's one lens, um, modernism came with this, this association that if it's not historical, it's not true. And here the Bible is reads kind of like a history book, even though it's really not, but it reads kind of like that. It says this king followed, was followed by this king, was followed by this king, was, and this city was destroyed, and then this city was destroyed, and that kind of thing. We assumed, hey, this must be what we mean by history. And so the reaction was to try to find the fundamentals of faith. What are the non-negotiables here? And by the way, let me just praise this as an impulse in case you get the wrong idea. There's nothing wrong with this impulse. I mean, in fact, one of my favorite books of all time is a book by Ronald Rollheiser. He's a Catholic uh, priest. Um, and his book is called The Holy Longing. And in it, he, he lists four non-negotiables of Christian spirituality. Now, I want to tell you something that that takes tremendous courage, especially in, in the modern world to say, here are the non-negotiables of something. And so it's, it's kind of provocative in that sense. And, and the impulse I, I want to praise. I mean, religion, as you know, any religion gets filled with junk. I mean, why? Because well, I guess human beings are filled with junk and time f- you know, you keep stuffing more things into the into the trunk here, and pretty soon it's it's this like unwieldy monstrosity. And so the impulse to say, wait a minute, what the hell are we doing? Let's go back to the fundamentals. I think it's actually a pretty good impulse. But if you mix that, and then especially in the 1900s, with um, with notions of 
of literal truth as as the scientific era has been in pursuit of if you put that into the cauldron here and stir then then what you had is is christian fundamentalists saying okay we got to find the non-negotiable of truth here and that is the bible that's where we're going to land and that's really for the first time you you get words like inerrant. So the Bible is inerrant, meaning it is without error in every respect. In the original Greek and Hebrew, there's not a single error in it anywhere. In in, in every single word of the Bible, it is completely reliable. And how does that get applied? Well, completely reliable historically. Um, if it says they destroyed this city, that's exactly what they did exactly in the way they describe it in the biblical text. So this this you cannot question. And it gave the the evangelical community that grew up out of this movement a you know a, a lever and a place to stand. So the place we're going to stand is the Bible. And one of the things that you you have to admit about the evangelical community is that they know the Bible pretty well. And and that's because that's the ground on which they're standing. And so they have a responsibility to take it seriously and they do. Okay. You also have Islamic fundamentalism, by the way, coming on on the scene about the same time here. I'm not an expert in Islam. I've had like one graduate course in it, but you do have Islamic fundamentalism coming, um, you know, reacting to the same kinds of pressures of, of modernism and coming up with very similar conclusions about the Quran, for example. Um, but I'm, I don't want to talk much about that, but I just want to say, for the most part, it's a new phenomenon, although early expressions of it, you can find it wherever you find religion. There's always going to be people to, who are saying, here are the non-negotiables, here's the ground we stand on. And and um, and even one, you know, crack in, in our non-negotiables means you're on the slippery slope to heresy, to, you know, burning in hell or whatever. That's what fundamentalism tends to do. So maybe that's enough said about, about what is it. Um, and let me say one other thing, because I think, I believe in, I guess, what Jung called the religious instinct, that, that there is an element in the human psyche that seeks the transcendent, the whole, the one, and you can't get rid of it. I don't care if, in my, in my view, you can say you're an agnostic or an atheist or a humanist or something, and, and those are all, all valid places to stand. I don't think you can get rid of the religious instinct. It's the thing that, that, that seeks the transcendent, the whole. Even saying there is no God is a whole. It's, it's seeking the transcendent. It's seeking a totality here. And maybe the other side of that coin, this impulse to seek the transcendent, is also the very human notion of trying to contain the transcendent, the whole, the big. <laughs> we got to pull it back down to something manageable that the human ego understands and can, can control and promote and, and come up with, with theological um, points that, that are solid, you know, something like that. So let's just say they live in tension. Um, okay. So maybe enough said, let me just kind of quickly go through how to spot a fundamentalist. And if you really want to, to, um, get the most out of this podcast, you might want to say, how do I, how might I be able to spot my own fundamentalism? In fact, you know, two, two things are coming to mind from the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus continue to be on my mind. And, and in part, I'm, I'm, well, I'm working on another podcast. I don't know if it's going to be a completely separate thing. I may just make it kind of a standing episode where I, I wrestle with some um, biblical text. They, they continue to come up and sort of grip me and grab me. Here are a couple lines from Jesus. Um, so one of the things that you notice about the healing stories in the Gospels is that they often involve blindness. And so it, it's, it becomes a, a major symbol for the kind of thing that Jesus is up to. And it, at one point um, in the Gospel of John, he's really criticizing the Pharisees mainly. The Pharisees are, are like the teachers uh, of, of Israel um, in, this, in this time period. They're also a political party. I don't want to get into too much critical scholarship here. But um, in any case, what my, my point is, at one point they say to Jesus, the Pharisees say, are you saying we're blind too? They're almost surprised. They're like, wait a minute, are you talking about us? And Jesus says something quite gripping. He says, if you claim to see, you're blind. So that's his answer to the question. 
Yeah, I'm talking about you because you claim to see. And maybe we could say that that <laughs> the fundamentals of being a fundamentalist is claiming to see. That I know what I know, I see what I see, and it's black and white, and, and Jesus says, yeah, and if you're like that, you're blind. That, that, that clinging too tightly to your capacity to know and see is in fact blinding. So, I mean, to whom does that apply? Well, it applies to us, certainly, but maybe just across the board, is there a group out there right now that's claiming to see? Well, we can pretty much assume that just behind that is this fundamentalist impulse here. I know that I know that I know was the like the phrase we loved as kids. Um, well, we didn't love it. Adults loved it. And Jesus says, yeah, watch out, watch out. And, um, you know, me, I, I sort of feel like I want to say one other line from Jesus here that I think is is kind of profound and it sort of comes in from the side so you're probably familiar with one of jesus's famous lines he says what if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul and and i love this line it's actually like a dagger to to my own heart and mind often it just all of a sudden will come into my awareness you know, what if I gain the whole world? And, and partly what Jesus is saying is, okay, what if you gain, gain a name, an identity, a political party, and, and establish yourself and, and make it and succeed and climb the ladder and apply it to anything at all? Um, any kind of role, identity, um, purpose, meaning that's cultural and, and that the ego loves, you could say, the, the conscious part of our minds, the, our conscious awareness. And he says, okay, what if you get it all? but you don't know anything about the soul, you know? That's that depth dimension, that you can be split off from the essence of who you are. And I might even just say one of the many definitions I, I like of soul, and this is a, kind of my own, really, I guess, it's just something like, well, the soul is the part of us that knows God and, and, and knows the transcendent and is always there. It's always in, it's always alive and breathing. It, it's, it's a place, like a geographical location in our, in our being that knows God. And maybe it's the place where God also knows us. And it's a kind of deeper homecoming. And anyway, uh, the word, of course, is psyche. What if you gain the whole world and forfeit your psyche? And now here's just the detail I want to add. Psyche is, is a noun, really, in Greek. And it's connected to the butterfly. And that is so profound to me that that in and of itself deserves, you know, its own book, its own podcast. Why are the Greeks connecting psyche, that part of our being, with the butterfly? Well, they're describing something that is so profound about the human condition that we're born into the world and that we can be born again. We're, we come into the world as a caterpillar, and if you want to say the caterpillar, perhaps, in, in our metaphor, is the part of us that, that is trying to gain the whole world, you know, and is going around eating and eating and eating and eating, not knowing what's coming, you know. But, but we have the capacity for, to go into a kind of womb or tomb or cocoon or chrysalis and be dissolved and dismantled. And, you know, these, this is the nature of most of my podcasts, you know, that this reality exists. And what comes out the other side is, is something quite amazing, which is the capacity to fly, to, to come into the fullness of our own wings, um, to taste and touch and become and embody the fullest expression of our own of our own human selves. So what's my point here? That people can change and transform. And how does that, that apply to fundamentalism? Well, fundamentalism is the resistance to the butterfly, if I want to put it that way. That I might be wrong, that I might need to, to be born again, that I might need to go into the chrysalis, that I might need to go into the tomb, that I might need to be thrown overboard like Jonah. And all of the other metaphors that I'm always talking about, it's saying, um, fundamentalism says, no stay a caterpillar, always a caterpillar. These are the fundamentals. Don't question it. Don't go anywhere. You don't need to change. Other people need to change. 
So it's that part of us that resists. And I just want to say, we all have it. We all resist what's ultimately good for us because who, who, who wants to die before they die? Who wants to be wrong? Who wants to get worked and dismantled and, and fall in love? And, um, because falling in love is also disorienting and it turns your world upside down. And who wants to fall in love with the transcendent? Cause it might, you know, pull the, I was going to say pull the rug out from under. I was looking for a better metaphor that, you know, might the trap door might open and we might fall into a world that we know very little about. Yeah. That's what happens. We might be like Saul and out, out one day get blinded by a light and a voice that says, what are you doing? What the hell are you doing? Yeah. Who wants that? We might have to change. Okay. So how to spot a fundamentalist? I'll, I'll try to go pretty quickly here. Number one, fundamentalist does not allow questions, right? Questions are, certain questions are off limits. You know, when I was a kid, it was like evolution. You know, evolution was just simply off limits. The earth was 5,000 years old or 10, you know, that was allowed, but more like five to eight. I like the range, five to eight. And this is a historical fact. It's proven in the Bible and you can't even question it. You know, I remember one time talking to my dad and he's, he was saying, I tend to believe that the, the earth is, is, is young. I was like, dad, I can take you to archeological sites in Israel and we can stand there that are older than you think the earth is. Now his response to this was just to laugh, which gives you a little, that's maybe point number two here, getting ahead of myself that humor can help here, but maybe he wasn't as much of a fundamentalist as people thought he was being, you know, founding the moral majority and so forth. Cause he could laugh a, a bit about this. So anyway, um, you were not allowed to ask questions. You're not, allowed, you know, sex is, you can't have sex before marriage, period. It's a non-negotiable. And you can imagine raising your hand and saying something like, yeah, but did Adam and Eve get married? You know, who did the ceremony? You know, shut up. Don't ask questions. God must have done the ceremony, whatever. <laughs> this kind of rigid resistance to asking questions that, that push on whatever the fundamentals are. Now, do you see this in our culture? Oh my God, it's absolutely everywhere. Do not ask questions about where the vaccine came from. Do not ask questions about whether or not masks work. Do not ask questions about the efficacy of vaccines on both sides, you know? Um, do not ask questions about gender. Do not ask questions about race. If you ask a question about race, challenging certain assumptions, well, you can easily you know, be labeled, well, like in my case, I'll just pick on myself, you are a white male, you can't ask these questions. It literally blinds you from the capacity to ask questions about about race and to see, you know. What I'm describing here is is not is is the rigid resistance to certain kinds of questions. If you spot that, you you have spotted a fundamentalist. If you if you if you feel that rising up in your own being, and usually it comes with a kind of an emotional charge, um, which is also a way of recognizing where fundamentalism uh, might be hiding. Then you're pretty sure you're in, in the presence of it. <laughs> so you're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to ask questions about the history of the United States, you know, on, on both sides. Either it's all bad or it's all good, you know. Um, so the, you know, my, one of my, points I'm making here is the right and the left right now, especially in the mainstream, mainstream right and left is gripped by this resistance to questions. You cannot ask is what we're saying sometimes out loud. This is the, this is what's going on with, with banning certain people from Twitter. I mean, I was disturbed when Trump was banned from Twitter. I mean, I didn't like some of the things Trump was saying, you know, I didn't love his tweets, you know, I wasn't like, yeah, this is fantastic. But to say, you're not allowed to say these things. You're not, you're not permitted to say these things because it raises certain kinds of questions is I think what's kind of scary about it. Because you might celebrate the fact that Trump is banned from Twitter until someone that you follow is banned from Twitter. And then you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, I know Twitter is a corporation and is interested in making money and selling us things and ads. And, but, um, 
it bills itself as a place for free speech. And we, we can see how, you know, YouTube and Twitter and Facebook are, are all mixed up with this hot debate right now. I'm going to say more about that in a few minutes. But what my, what my point is right now, try to sniff around for people, groups that say you're not allowed to ask questions. Okay, point number two. A fundamentalist is incapable of self-critique really of looking in the mirror and saying something like, we might be wrong. So self-critical assessment. No, the thing that needs to be critiqued is the other side. You know, they have the problem. This, of course, is, is, comes from standing in a place where you're not allowed to ask certain kind of questions, which is the same thing as saying, we're right over here. Think about questions with the environment. You know, I believe in env environmental degradation, for, for example. But if you ask any question about um, depending on where you stand, right or left, conservative, progressive, any kind of question that's, that's out of bounds, that pushes against the, the dominant narrative, it's shut down. And so there's no room for self-critique. There's no room for, I might be wrong. You know, one of the funny things, um, like I said, I'm going to try to step on everybody's toes here. You know, I was really moved by inconvenient truth. I, I became a part of the Green Party and voted Green, although I didn't even know who these people were, if I tell you the truth. I didn't even know what the Green Party was. It just sounded like better than, you know, cooler in a way than than the Republicans and the Democrats. But I was moved by the by the by Al Gore's inconvenient truth. And in it, he visits Glacier National Park. And, and on the signs in Glacier National Park, it says all the glaciers will be gone by 2020. You know, you can stand there and read the sign and see a glacier. Now, many of them have disappeared. So it's not like the, the trajectory of the inconvenient truth was wrong, but that kind of certainty, you know. And if you were to say that's not true back in the day, that would be an off-limits place to stand. You can't ask questions sort of thing. So anyway, self-critique, the capacity to say, well, I might be wrong. I might get things wrong. There are so many variables. I can't stand from a place of certainty here. I can say, here are the patterns. That's, that's a much more humble place to stand. But fundamentalism says, um, it cuts, cuts off self-critique at the knees. And a, a clue that you're in the presence of fundamentalism is that there's no sense of humor about this stuff. I mean, that's probably the biggest alarm bell. That actually what worried me about Trump early on, there was no sense of, of humor, you know, about, about himself. Every once in a while, every once in a great, great while, it would come through. I remember he said something critical about his hair one time, and I was like, oh my God, there's a chance, you know. But when you're really gripped by a fundamentalist attitude, mindset, um, archetype, you, you might even could call it, you're not going to make fun of yourself. And this is why, by the way, com the comedians are the truth tellers right now, because not only do they make fun of things, but they also make fun of themselves. And that gives them, uh, um, it, it helps take the blinders off. So you want to spot a fun fundamentalist, look for the inability to do some self-reflection and some self-critique. Is the left right now saying I might be wrong about its various positions? Is the right right now saying I might be wrong? And think about how all the many opportunities, you know, on both sides to say we might be wrong and we might need to, to come down off the cloud here or, or crash into the ocean like Icarus. We're, we're flying too high in our certainties and our, the joints of our wings are made of wax. Yeah, that's the right kind of move. Come back down to earth. Um, and a little self-examination, a little looking in the mirror is what's required. Okay. Point number three here, and this is the most important thing I want to say on the entire podcast, that the, at the very core of fundamentalism is the division between the saved and unsaved, the in-group and the out-group, the red and the blue, but saved and unsaved. And more than that, rooted in purity. Like we're the pure camp, we're the righteous camp, and they're the impure camp. They're the non-righteous camp. They're unsaved. Now, where do we hear this kind of language? I'll give you a list. Basket of deplorables. This thing, I love that this slipped out of Hillary Clinton's mouth because the truth slipped out, that she was dividing the world between the saved and the unsaved, and we're in the saved camp and the rest are deplorables, you know? That's fundamentalism right there. That's dividing up the world between who's righteous and who's not. Or how about Justin Trudeau lately? Uh, his, his line was devastating, I think. 
in what it revealed when he said that the truckers, the, the many hundreds of truckers and the thousands of people who were joining the protests around the mandates, he said they have, quote, unacceptable views. Now, there is not a better line for sniffing out fundamentalism than that. This is what we did as kids. There were acceptable views and unacceptable views. There were the righteous views and the unrighteous views that divided the world up between the saved and the unsaved. I mean, it's really the same thing as saying we're in the saved camp. And these truckers are unsaved. You know, I know that this sounds like insane, but it's the exact same mentality. They have unacceptable views. And, and by the way, like, um, I, you know, I'm not trying to, to weigh into the, the, what's going on in Canada so much, although I have an opinion about it. I think, um, I, I'm uncomfortable with government mandates like this. I mean, I don't, I'm not a fundamentalist when it comes to that. I think some mandates are fine. But I think we should always be wrestling with, with the question of power. That's what, what is, strikes me as so strange about the left right now. In the 1960s, you know, its main message was you can't trust the government. And now its main message is trust the government. You know, it's like that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. We should always be suspicious of power and suspicious of mandates. Um, have we not learned anything from the 20th century, we might ask? So anyway, a bit of a sidetrack here. But this notion of unacceptable views, I think, is quite revealing. And um, I also heard a, a whiff of it on CNN the other day because I heard a commentator say, speaking of the vaccines, that, quote, those of us who are enlightened have the vaccine. And I thought, okay, there it is. There's religious dogmatism, and religious certainty and fundamentalism and literally using religious categories like enlightened or unenlightened. You know, I know that's a bit, a bit more of a Buddhist notion than it is a Christian notion, notion, but nevertheless, it's religious in its orientation. And that's what happens when you're gripped in fundamentalism. You start dividing the world up like this. And, um, yeah, and this is just worth trying to sniff out, both in other people and in ourselves. And, and this leads me to, I think, something even deeper that's sort of hidden here. And that has to do with purity codes. So my friend Peter Rollins, who's been on the podcast, likes to say that religion, and particularly religious rules, are really rooted in contagion ideas, purity who's pure and who's impure, who's clean and who's unclean. He, he really likes to argue that much of religion is really rooted right here. And, and that, of course, is related to who's saved and who's unsaved, who's, who's acceptable, who's unacceptable, whose views are safe and whose views are unsafe. And the purity code thing works deep, deep in the psyche. And, and it's also evolutionary. I mean, there are contagions in the world and there are things that we need to avoid and things that we have evolved to, to, um, to be repulsed by, for example. That's all part of the, the psychic and biological makeup of what it means to be human. And those get codified in religious um, categories. And the Bible is full of these, especially the Hebrew Bible, the clean and unclean, the contaminated and the uncontaminated. And, and how is that creeping into? Well, it's creeping into the way we view people around masks, for example, and the vaccine. I mean, the, I'm, not, I'm not saying there isn't a place for these debates, but I'm saying, why is there so much passion and energy and anger and fear and rage and finger pointing on both sides is because... It's something very, 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 very old is being activated, and that is who's pure and who's impure. And when you look out on the landscape, and if you're a mask wearer and you see someone who's not masks, you know, you can feel that kind of um, visceral body reaction. I felt that early on, you know, going into a grocery store, like I'm afraid of the people that I'm near right now. And there's an unmasked person. Oh my God, you know, I'm going to be contaminated. And, and of course, there you can say, well, the there's some truth to this. Well, okay, okay. But what's being activated here? And right now, the culture is such that we've got the saved and unsaved camps. And, and the same goes the other way around. There's someone who has the vaccine, who's masked. I ought to be afraid of them. They're contaminated in some way. They've, they have the impurities of the MMRA in their system. And, they're, you know, and then, of course, conspiracy theories can grow from there that 
you know, this is like the mark of the beast or, you know, you know, uh, you know, some kind of government plant. And, and I might just add here that fundamentalism often gives rise to, um, to conspiracy theories because of, of the fear that's, be, that's behind who's saved and who's unsaved, who's, who's um, safe and who's unsafe. Conspiracy theories always are on the rise in periods of anxiety when fundamentalism is, is making a comeback. And so we see them all over the place. The left has tons, the right has tons. I remember so many when Trump was president. I mean, the truth of the fact is, <laughs> in, in my view at least, What's really going on in the government? Well, probably something like ineptitude, bumbling, bad decisions, ignorance, and power games. That's kind of what probably is going on. And what was going on in the Trump administration? Well, ineptitude, bumbling, bad decisions, ignorance, and power games. What's going on in the Biden administration? Well, a lot of ineptitude, bumbling, bad decisions, ignorance, and power games. That's probably a (laughs) non-negotiable. But the idea of sophisticated and complex... Um, conspiracy theories about what's really going on, they're, they're attractive to the fundamentalist because it helps divide the world up and who can I trust and who can I not? And who can I blame and who can I finger point toward? So, um, okay, it, it, point number four, and then I'm going to briefly say what can we do about it. Point number four is that fundamentalism always comes with special words always special words. And those special words reveal who's really in the saved and unsaved camp, who uses the words in the right way and means the right things by them and, and, and bans certain words and allows certain other words. Like our vocabulary was tightly controlled as fundamentalist Christian kids. We were not allowed to swear. We were not allowed to, um, to even hint at swear words. Gosh was considered, you know, you're almost about to burn in hell in certain circles. You couldn't hint at, you know, cuss words in other words. Um, and, and then there was the whole realm of insider language. You know, you had to say, you, and we became super efficient at, at, spotting who was not really one of us. Oh, they say they're a Christian, but they're not saying that they're a born-again Christian, you know. So born again or saved or they're baptized um, or they refer to communion as remembrance, you know, because if you don't say that, then you're, you're on the slippery slope to transubstantiation and Catholics are, you know, not in the saved camp. You know, you had to say a seven-day literal 24-hour creation, you know, if you didn't say that, then you're in the out group. You're in you're in the unsaved camp. Um, do you other other funny like insider language things are coming to my mind? It, assurance of salvation. Do you have assurance of salvation? You know, and that that meant a certain uh, kind of thing was at work. And if you use that kind of language, have you rededicated your life to Christ? You know, I'm just saying by using these phrases, it revealed to the group that you're in the in group. That's more of the point. Now, I know a lot of these phrases have a theological backdrop and theology is fine. I, I used to look down my nose at theology. My wife was reminding me the other day, something, a line from Ken Wilber. He says that theology is the highest of disciplines. Most of my adult life, I've tried to treat it as the lowest of disciplines, like Give me historical, critical scholarship and anthropology and even and myth and and don't give me theology, you know. But theology is just the study of the transcendent. It's the words we use about around what's ultimately unnameable and unknowable. I can't think of a higher discipline. Anyway, so I know there's a theological backdrop to the language used, but we but the fundamentalist uses language to detect who's in and who's out. And oh my God, do we not live in an age where there is absolutely absolute insanity around language policing are you in one of our groups you know someone sent me a book the other day and um like to endure uh uh to to endure (laughs) that's a jungian slip there um but the opening paragraph was a long list of apologies about where this person came comes from about their identity and the fact that they're a male and the fact that they're white and and why is this person using this language well to to offer a, a clue to wave a little flag that says I'm okay to a certain group now to another group that's the opposite it's like now we can't read this person so language as as a kind of policing tool a kind of um a badge you're wearing you know I just had like a dark image of of Jewish people wearing the 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 
having being forced to wear the the star. We're in that kind of cultural climate where the words you use is like wearing a badge and who's safe and who's unsafe, who who's in the saved camp and who's in the unsaved camp. Are you tracking with me so far? I hope I'm stepping on someone's toes here. I hope I'm stepping on your toes. Do, are you currently playing language policing games? So and so didn't use the right words in the right way. They're out. You know, that kind of thing. All right, so what to do about it? Um, it's hard to say humility is the answer because it's hard to know how to pursue that, but it's the answer. It's to crash back into the ocean like Icarus. It's to come back down to earth. It's to acknowledge that human beings in their hubris fly too high. Even Mars will be you know, we'll still crash down to earth from Mars. I mean, we can't keep going up and up and up. We need to say something like, I'm just a human being. You're just a human being. I see and I don't see at the same time. I'm not blind in certain areas and I'm blind in ways I don't know anything about quite yet. That requires tremendous humility, which we all struggle with. And maybe just behind humility is something like curiosity. You know, I don't mean to, you know, I'm not trying to pump myself up here for a second, but when Trump was elected, I, I had this feeling, like this sense of, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I don't really know that much about my country. I don't really know that much about my neighbor. And that's a seed of curiosity. If I water that, it can actually bloom into something like humility. Now, if I don't water it, okay, then I don't water it. But I think a curiosity about the other is absolutely essential. And a, and a curiosity about, about all the information that's out there. Now we have information and misinformation and disinformation. You know, I don't even know if these are freaking words at this point. But just some curiosity, like, what do I not know, I think, is, is a step forward. Um, okay, here's another thing to do about it. Become conscious of when you're in an exaggerated emotional reactive state about something. I'm like this a lot. I read something on the news or in an article and I'm totally activated in a way that I'm kind of taken over and consumed. I can be pretty sure that a kind of fundamentalism is at work. It's pushing on a rigidity in my own system. I'm the caterpillar saying, you know, damn it, I'm not going to change. Don't push on me this way. And I get quickly into the fight or flight or freeze kind of react reactive model. So are you emotionally charged about something in a way that doesn't really quite make sense? Uh, let me say something else. That's, a, I think, a way out of this. And that's to acknowledge that we have actually, positively, as human beings, a tremendous capacity to hold contradictions, tensions, and paradoxes. That's actually a, a definition of, a, of an adult, according to James Hollis, the, the, um, the Jungian analyst and author. Amazing. Um, he, he says, adult... Now, maturity looks like the capacity to hold tension. So if we don't tell ourselves that from time to time, we get sucked back into that caterpillar state of rigidity and certainty. No, an adult looks like the capacity to hold contradictions, tensions, and paradox. I've got a little red and blue in my own psyche. And there's a lot of truth in my red neighbors and a lot of truth in my blue neighbors. And, um, and I think I can, and I can hold these paradoxes remind ourselves that that we have this capacity um and and finally i i want to i'll end with a line from jesus and it's very straightforward take the plank out of your own eye you know i have a couple podcasts where i talk about the shadow and this is shadow work 101 why do you look at the speck of dog, sawdust in your brother or sister's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own i mean that is as straightforward as you can get you have to look in the mirror and say where am i blind and if you do the work of trying to dislodge the plank, the log, the massive pillar that's clogging your vision, then you'll see clearly to help with the speck of dust in your brother's eye. That's what Jesus says. But the aim, the goal, the notion is to do self-examination first, to say, I'm probably blind. I'm probably wrong. I probably don't see the situation clearly. My political opinion probably is not pure. I'm not as righteous as I think. I'm not in the pure camp. I'm actually not in the saved camp. Um, and how might I work to dislodge the blindness that um, I'm carrying around, which probably everyone else can see, but I can't. In other words, this is like, you know, shadow 101 work. 
what we don't know, what we can't see, what we refuse to see. You know, what I hate in the other is probably in me. What I, for that matter, what I worship in the other, you know, those who I praise and put up on a pedestal, you know, it's probably in me in some way. So maybe, maybe this is a good place to land, a good place to end. You know, my, my aim today was just to stir up a little trouble, I, I hope, in, in, in a good way and, and to create a, at least ask the question, um, am, I, am I prone to fundamentalism? And is this, it's almost like a, a it's almost like a contagion, a, a cultural pandemic at present that's pulling us um, deeper into into the smallest sense of being a human the the most uh pr- protected and fearful and tribal and limbic part of our humanity it's there i'm not denying that it's there but it's like the cultural weather right now is pulling us toward that and is there anything i can do to take responsibility for my own capacities to get sucked into this and and to and to be aware and conscious of, of where fundamentalism is, is creeping up and, and to not play the game. It's possible not to play the game. It's possible, you know, it's funny because when I'm often activated and I say something with, you know, a tremendous amount of certainty, which I, I'm prone to do, as my kids know, and, you know, I just make broad announcements about there's going to be a snow day or whatever, stupid things that I, I really have no idea about. Um, and... You know, it's funny when, when, when I do put myself out that way and somebody responds with a little humility, the humility itself is contagious. Now, sometimes I'm defensive and, you know, argue back. But if I say something like, well, I just, I know fill in the blank. Someone says something as simple as, well, I'm not so sure. You know, I kind of see it. I see what you're saying, but I don't know if I've, I, I don't know if I'm that certain about that. And sometimes I wonder about as soon as that that kind of attitude enters the the mysterious field between us, it changes things. So just as quickly, my point is just as quickly as as fundamentalism is contagious and we want to all jump on the same bandwagon and create the categories of saved and unsaved, um, well, humility and curiosity is is just as contagious and maybe even more powerful in a way because it brings us back down to earth. So... Um, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I'll just leave it at that. And and again, thank you for being a uh, being a listener and 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 for your support and and for staying curious about what we mean by religion, spirituality, God, meaning, truth, myth, story love, death, all the good stuff. Um, maybe just to bring it back to the image that Jesus uses, what if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? And, and a thing that I find so gripping and compelling is how, how much of the spiritual life of the psyche, of the soul, fr- from this transition, this potent and potential transition from our caterpillar selves, our, our first egoic awareness and consciousness into the chrysalis and the tomb and the womb and, and to the filling out of our wings with blood. This, how much of this process is really about consent and allowing the mystery of life and of God and of the divine and of, of of the unknowns to have its way with us. You know, I just, I, I love Rilke's line where he says, um, we must be defeated decisively by ever greater beings. This is in his um, poem about Jacob and the angel wrestling. Yeah, the point is, is we must be defeated by ever greater beings. He says, winning does not tempt this person. And the caterpillar wants to win, and fundamentalism wants to win, and but there's this deeper and I think more true uh, element of our own humanity that 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 lures us into the cocoon here. 
and um, and it feels like being defeated, and it feels like surrender, and it feels like consent, and um, and that is meaningful. So I don't know. That's what I got for you today. I hope you heard a, a hint, a guess, a clue for your own uh, wild undoing.
But the caterpillar, so to speak, back to our image of the psyche, is the part of us that doesn't want to hold contradictions, tensions, or paradoxes. And the almost the only thing that can break through that that certainty, that cloud, self-righteous cloud of certainty, is something like a death. <clears throat> it's something like part of our worldview starts to unravel. Our marriage doesn't work. Our church doesn't work. Our, um, our kids don't end up doing what we want them to do. Uh, my life doesn't actually unfold the way I thought it was going to unfold. And we find ourselves in the cocoon, in this place of sweet darkness and unraveling and and uncertainty. And, and that's the very kind of breakdown that on the other side, we're able to hold with a little more grace, the contradictions of, of our own humanity, our own personal contradictions, the contradictions of, of our species, <laughs> the unknowns of the universe, contradictions, tensions, and paradoxes. So it's important to tell ourselves, all right, fundamentalism is, a, is running in the opposite direction from this deep and I think soulful capacity. Okay. <clears throat> Maybe I'll end just with a line from Jesus. And that is, take the plank out of your own eye. <laughs> this is Jesus's direct advice around fundamentalism. First of all, he says to the Pharisees, if you claim to see you're blind. And then he says, why do you worry about the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? He's telling us a secret here. The great ancient um, wisdom teachers here are giving us a clue for how to live in the 21st century in a world that they could not imagine, like with cell phones and, you know, interballistic missiles and, and the internet, for God's sake. But the ancient voices of wisdom bubbling up from the underworld still have something to offer that... The problem with fundamentalism is that it looks for the speck of dust in someone else's eye and saying there is the problem over there and they need to worry about it instead of taking the time to extract the plank, the board, the giant block of wood in your own eye. This is like shadow work 101. I've had other podcasts on the shadows. I don't want to go into too much detail here, but what we don't know about ourselves, what we can't see about ourselves, what we refuse to see about ourselves, what, what we once saw about ourselves, but it went right back into the black bag and down into the unconscious. This is our shadow material. And more often than not, what we cannot see about ourselves, we put onto somebody else and call that the speck of dust in their eye, that they're the problem. Meanwhile, unable to see the ways in which we carry the problem ourselves. So in other words, what we hate in the other is often in us. What is the worst thing in the other person, in the other group, in the other ideology is something floating around in our own psyches that we can't quite see. The same is also true for what we worship. You know, what I worship in the other, in that person, in that hero, in, <clears throat> in their bravery and their courage is also something that I'm having a hard time owning. I'd rather have them carry that than to take a look at my own capacities here. <laughs> the wood that's in my own eye, so to speak. So um, I think that's probably enough. Enough of, uh, of, of a, <laughs> a riff here on, on the re-rising of fundamentalism. Thanks for sticking with it if you have this far. And thanks for your support. And um, yeah, I'll join you in these in the monumental task that we're faced in the in the 21st century of of doing some self-examination here of looking for the plank in our own eye i mean what else other than that kind of move is going to soften our hearts toward brothers and sisters that we don't agree with and soften our hearts to the ways in which the world and civilization and and even the natural world is unraveling and is going to soften us in a way that says, all right, I'm not the center of the universe here. And, um, and I need in my own ways to go into the chrysalis, into the cocoon. And so does culture and so does civilization. Um, it's a way of consenting to the mystery of transformation. 
So, peace.